Welcome to Pocket Economics, a guide to changing lives. Our podcast about the ideas shaping the EBRD regions and beyond. Some of these ideas are actively helping us in our mission to invest in changing lives. Others are an important part of the landscape in which we operate. Today, we're looking at political economy, asking the question, do reformers have to be popular to be successful? It's a conundrum that thinkers have agonized over for centuries. Not least Machiavelli, who observed, there's nothing more difficult to carry out, nor more doubtful of success, nor more dangerous to handle than to initiate a new order of things. For the reformer has enemies in all of those who profit by the old order, and only lukewarm defenders in all of those who would profit by the new order. So how can political economy help us to understand that dynamic between rulers, ruled, and reforms? I'm Jonathan Charles, and with me today to discuss this and related topics is Sergei Guriev, the EBRD's chief economist. Sergei, how has the definition of political economy evolved over time, and, and why is it so relevant today? Thank you very much, uh, Jonathan. This is a, actually a very good question, because economists uh, for centuries thought about political economy being the economic science, in the sense that economics in itself didn't exist outside of politics. And uh, when we talk about what Adam Smith was uh, researching, for him, that would be political economy. This is interesting to what extent political science and economics got separated and then converged back. And the reason for that is people started to understand that just proposing economic solutions is not enough if there is no political support for those solutions. And actually, here in our EBRD region, we saw some of those lessons being learned when uh, reforms that would eventually bring uh, welfare and prosperity would be rejected because on the way, in the interim, majority of population were suffering from the cost of those reforms and eventually overthrowing the rulers or governments that uh, proposed those reforms. So that's what we saw really in 2010 and 2011 in Tunisia, in Egypt, in other places, where actually the politics and the economics are so closely intertwined. Not only in uh, North Africa, but also in our traditional countries of operations, we saw examples where early costs of the reforms uh, resulted in populist politicians taking over and then actually creating uh, institutions of chronic capitalism that precluded further reforms. And not only we saw reforms stuck, but we also saw reforms reversed. Some of our countries of operations, unfortunately, did not achieve the goals that we set for them or they set for themselves 25 years ago. Do you think that many governments Governments really understand these Siamese twins, this interconnection between politics and economics? Uh, those governments that don't understand the connections and the relationships between economics and politics uh, don't actually last long. So even if you have a presidential term which lasts for quite a few years, unless you perform well in terms of economics, you will not be popular, your party will be voted out of power, your successor will not be able to take your job. Vice versa, if you're an economic reformer, you need to make sure that you have a political capital to remain popular, to push through the reforms. And that is a big challenge for every reformer, to structure the reforms, to make sure that the public actually supports the reforms. That's a very interesting point, because in the end, if reform is to be pushed through, then you really have to understand the political economy. I wonder as you look at this, what, what factors really determine success, the failure uh, or success of, of reforms? How, do, how does that really work? And do you have to be popular 
to be able to push through reform? Uh, absolutely. You have to maintain popularity among the majority. And unfortunately, in some of our countries of operations, reforms are delivered on average, but not for majority. So in, in some cases, we would see that uh, baseline growth numbers would be good, but uh, they would actually be benefiting only the top 20%, and in some countries, people would say top 20 people in the nation. And that would mean that uh, even though the GDP growth would be strong, the majority of the population won't see the benefits of growth and therefore reject those reforms. So popularity is important. And part of that, of course, is communication. Part of that is engaging with the public and understanding the uh, needs of the public. But of course, communication is not enough. We really need to think about inclusion. We really need to think providing public goods. And we need to make sure that the losers from reforms get compensated and keep supporting the reforms. We can all think of reformers who weren't popular, though. I mean, I could think, I suppose, in the United Kingdom, Margaret Thatcher uh, in her first period in office, where she was very unpopular with what was being pushed through and probably would have lost the 1983 election if the Falklands War hadn't intervened, which buoyed her popularity. So nothing to do with her reforms, but actually without something extraneous, something exogenous, this would not have happened. Uh, that's true. Some of the reformers actually are very unpopular and get voted out of office, and then uh, uh, the fruits of their reforms are appropriated by their successors, sometimes from the opposite party. And in that sense, uh, things like this happen. And actually, in some very successful Western European countries right now, we see labor markets functioning very well because of the reforms carried out 15 years ago or 20 years ago by the predecessors of current governments. We think of reforms often being pushed through by democratically elected governments. What about authoritarian regimes and non-traditional democratic governments? Uh, I think uh, our region teaches very important lessons. We usually think that democratic governments have to remain popular when they push through the reforms. And therefore, some people would say we'd better have some uh, non-democratic leader who doesn't have to think about the majority, who can push through reforms. And therefore, that is how the really difficult reforms can go through. When we look at our region, and this is um, what we see in our transition report 2013, Stuck in Transition, we see a very clear correlation between a democratic political institutions and reforms. Countries which manage to build democratic political institutions are the countries which manage to reform and build market economy. And then there are also countries which created less democratic uh, political systems, which managed to build uh, chronic capitalism. And there, market reforms are not finished, not because the rulers cannot push them through, but because they don't want to. They enjoy staying in power. They enjoy sticking to the rents they generate and dividing those rents among the narrow Okay, we might examine that in just a minute. I mean, in your paper, How Modern Dictators Survive, you've written, dictators survive not because of their use of force or ideology, but because they convince the public, rightly or wrongly, that they are competent. And I suppose reform could be part of that. Absolutely. Uh, I'm very excited about this uh, research agenda because I think the nature of the dictatorship has changed. If you go back uh, 50 years or even 30 years, you would see a lot more violence used in the world, a lot more force and even ideology and brainwashing. Right now, non-democratic regimes use money and information, propaganda or censorship or limited repression. There are no longer mass killings. They are used very rarely. But most of today's non-democratic leaders try to convince the public. Uh, they are very 
skillful in bribing some people, brainwashing others, censoring yet others, and uh, they stay in power. And this is a very important difference. Unfortunately, uh, sometimes they pretend to do reforms, but eventually, since they want to stay in power rather than to benefit uh, the majority, they communicate the message that they've done reforms, but in fact, they are building chronic capitalist institutions to benefit themselves and their friends. Okay, we'll carry on examining this. You're listening to Pocket Economics, uh, the EBRD podcast on how economic ideas help change people's lives. Have your say. Uh, tell us, do you think true reformers can be popular? We'd like to know. You can contact us uh, at EBRD on Twitter and Facebook, hashtag uh, Pocket Economics. I'm Jonathan Charles. Today we're discussing political economy and the popularity of reformers with our guest, Sergei Guriev. And, and Sergei, usually... Governments start off popular before they carry out reforms, don't they? But it's what happens at the end of the reform process, which is also important. If uh, reforms are truly needed, if reforms are well designed, they are supposed to benefit the majority or everybody. Some people would say we carry out reforms and people don't appreciate what we are doing. I think the reforms that benefit only very few probably don't deserve to be implemented. And these are the wrong reforms. Eventually, reforms have to be popular. And if you actually look around our region, there are many countries which, when they look back, they may not reward the politicians who have done the reforms, but they don't want to reverse the reforms. There are many countries where market reforms have been, by and large, completed, and there is no question that these reforms have to be reversed, even though sometimes politicians who implemented those reforms have not been popular by the end of their mandate. But this is the job of a reformer. You do that not because you, you want to be happy or praised immediately, but you, you do it because you think that you're benefiting uh, your, your society. I mean, understanding the political economy in this context is really, I suppose, understanding the art of the possible. Exactly. For, for politicians. The difficulty for politicians is they're always up against, uh, at least in elected uh, governments, up against the democratic cycle. You know, is it possible to deliver real reform within that very complex timekeeping? Because you might only have four or five years. And in fact, as you're preparing for your next election, you might have to do everything in the first couple of years. I think when people say that in a democratic uh, society it's impossible to carry out reforms, and indeed in some countries we are talking about four or five years electoral cycle, in some other countries you're actually constantly under the pressure of coalition falling apart. I think uh, people underestimate the ability of the voters to understand uh, what they're being told. And we have many examples where very painful reforms are implemented and yet uh, governments get uh, re-elected. And we saw, for example, in Baltic states during the Great Recession in 2008-2009, huge austerity packages being pushed through and governments who would push them through uh, be re-elected. And the reason for that was that uh, societies understood the necessity of those uh, reforms and they also understood that the government was in the same boat with the voters. And this is yet another important lesson. There are many societies where reformers are not necessarily clean, reformers uh, enjoy different living standards, and that's where the public thinks these reforms are not for us, these reforms are for them. And uh, in, in that situation, of course, reforms are much harder to implement. This so there's a disconnect, that becomes The difficult. disconnect between the elites, establishment, and the ordinary people is something that is actually becoming very important, not only for our countries of operation, but also for the Western Europe. When we see the populists uh, presenting themselves as outsiders and challenges of the elite, 
athletes are, are gaining a lot of traction. You're just writing the new EBRD transition report now, which will uh, come out later in the year in November. Are there lessons on political economy that you can draw which would be useful for the sort of reforms that are still required, which you'll be discussing in the transition report? Yes, uh, this transition report is unique in uh, at least three dimensions. First, uh, it's the first transition report which uh, looks specifically on inequality and inclusion. And uh, this is very, very important because after 25 years of transition, we can actually look back and see whether inequality has increased, whether top 10% or bottom 80% have benefited from the reforms. And we see that in different countries of operation, we see very different picture. In some countries, we see that the uh, reforms have benefited top 20%. In some countries, we actually see growing middle class and 80% of the population benefiting from, from growth. And that's, uh, that's a very important issue. Another issue is that uh, we now can look at uh, whether the transition as a 25-year experience has delivered life satisfaction and well-being to the societies. And we see that eventually we no longer have what's called, uh, what used to be called transition happiness gap. When people living in transition countries would be less satisfied with their lives than people in similar countries with similar incomes, which means that transition countries on average have finally overcome this gap. Now, another important thing is actually to look back uh, tracking the record of the pain of the reforms when we look at physical well-being of individuals who grew up during transition. Actually, in development economics, uh, there is research which shows that people who grow up uh, during uh, hardship, disadvantaged environments, they grow up shorter. And we see that, indeed, people who were born around transition are actually, on average, one centimeter shorter than their peers in other countries or their peers who are older or younger, which means the pain of early years of transition was actually quite important. We also look to what extent um, transition has uh, helped uh, financial inclusion, inequality of opportunity. And in that sense, we offer a rich set of observations about our economies. But uh, most importantly, I would say that uh, we now can look back at 25 years of reform and offer lessons to non-transition countries. Many West European countries now need to go through painful reforms, not as painful as systemic change that transition countries have gone through. And one of the big lessons is you need to compensate the pain right away. This uh, short-term pain, long-term gain scenario may be very dangerous, when in the short run, the pain of the reform may reinforce the populist appeal, and then these populists who come to power may actually dismantle democratic institutions. And even when market reforms bring long-term gain, democratic reformers will no longer be able to claim that simply because they will no, no longer will be able to come to power because the non-democratic populist leaders will uh, no longer give up power. So if you draw a conclusion from that, it's that actually to be a reformer, you've got to be incredibly brave. Popularity is only part of the problem. That's, that's correct. And you also have to be very smart. You need to design reforms that work in the way that population understands uh, that it's going to benefit from the very start. It's not going to work if you just say, uh, be patient for a few years, things will improve uh, later on. That may not work simply because the populist politicians will come back and say, look, these reforms are designed for reformers' uh, benefits. And uh, reformers will not be able to come back and say, my reforms have actually paid off, simply because there'll be no political um, competition to allow the democratic uh, reformist governments uh, to reclaim political office. But if you're right, and I'm sure you are, then doesn't that militate against reform? It's quite difficult, isn't it, to get all those things lined up 
Uh, so the stars are aligned. You've got to have smartness, you've got to have bravery, you've got to have popularity, all these things coming together. How often does that really happen? We've seen a lot of reforms happening in our countries of operation, especially countries that have managed to maintain democratic political institutions. They have done a great job converging to West, West European economic and political institutions and living standards. And as I just said, uh, happiness standards. They're as happy or as unhappy as their Western neighbors. I think uh, the big question is, um, why we see sometimes a selection of uh, less uh, smart and less uh, honest uh, people going into politics. In our societies, we have a lot of outstanding individuals with very high integrity, and some of them don't choose to run for elected office. And I think this is a very, very good question for political uh, scholars of the future, how to make sure that uh, best of the best uh, the most honest, the most uh, gifted intellectually individuals go into politics and uh, get elected. That may be a topic we explore on another day. Sergei Guriev, thank you very much indeed. That's it for today. Meanwhile, you can share your thoughts with us on reform, popularity and political economy. Uh, you'll find us at EBRD on Twitter and Facebook. You can visit iTunes, SoundCloud and EBRD.com slash podcast to download the latest episode. Until next time, though, goodbye. <laughs>